Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I want to begin our series here on parenting by turning to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13. The words will be up on the screen behind you, and the fact that we're starting a parenting series <clears throat> in Judges probably means that things just got serious, didn't they? Things just got real serious. Judges chapter 13. I want to read the story here of Samson's parents. So his dad, Manoah, and his wife, they were childless for decades. So you can imagine the excitement when an angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife and says, hey, I have great news here. Here's the promise that the angel of the Lord says to Manoah's wife. This is Judges 13, verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." So again, you can imagine Manoah's wife. Her heart is racing. She's just been given news that she's waited for her whole life to receive. And so she's probably talking very, very fast. Verse 6, then the woman came and told her husband. The man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, Manoah hears this, and now he begins to freak out just a little bit. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Teach us what we are to do with this child. So don't imagine Manoah just calmly spreading out his prayer blanket and just lights a candle, and he thinks, oh, that's great, we're going to have a child. He's like, what? Are you kidding me, Lord? We have waited all these years. My wife has been barren, and now... An angel of the Lord comes, gives us this promise, and Lord, you don't give us a manual? You don't give us detailed instructions? It doesn't come with a, a plan on what we're supposed to do with this child? Teach us what we are to do with this child. That's the prayer of every parent, isn't it? That's the prayer of every Christian parent. Lord, teach me, help me. Guide me, instruct me, help me how to know how to raise this child or these children that you have given to me. And so notice in Manoah's case here, we're actually told that God heard his prayer. The messenger of God returned. And of course, he handed Manoah a papyrus that said, here are the 14,000 things that you need to remember when raising this child. And Manoah and his wife and young Samson, they lived happily ever after. That's not what happened, is it? The angel of the Lord did come to Manoah's wife. She races to her husband. Manoah follows her, finds the angel of the Lord. He says, are you the angel of the Lord? You're the one that gave this promise. The angel of the Lord says, yes, that's me. Manoah says in verse 12, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? 
And what is his mission? The translation, I get that we're going to have a child. Can't tell you how excited we are about that. But maybe, angel of the Lord, you didn't hear me the first time. Maybe I need to speak a little bit louder. I need a manual. What are we supposed to do? Give me a plan. I need a list. I need a prescription. Give me the instruction here. And to that, the angel of the Lord says, well, okay, here you go. Verses 13 and 14. Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So you see what's going on here. Basically, the parenting plan here was the Nazarite vow that Manoah, his wife, and Samson were to fulfill. So it was a commitment to consecrate themselves. That's kind of the Old Testament word. It means to set apart, to set themselves apart, to dedicate their lives as parents, notice. Dedicate their lives as parents to the Lord through a living, daily, vibrant relationship with him. In other words, a moment-by-moment trust in God. Manoah and his wife desired what you desire as a parent, what I desire as a parent, especially when you find out, and if it's your first child, it's like, okay, what, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to raise this child? I mean, we all long for some sort of manual, some specific instructions, and if it comes with pictures, that's probably even better. But notice the parent's prayer here, and this is every Christian parent's prayer. Lord, teach me how to parent my child. And God hears that prayer. Certainly heard it for Manoah. God hears that prayer when we pray, Lord, teach me how to parent my child. But the Lord doesn't answer that prayer with an instruction manual, does he? He doesn't just give you, here's the plan for your child. This is what it's going to look like year one, year two, year ten. Here's the challenges that you're going to face. Here's what you do when you face those challenges. No, God hears the parents, our prayers, and he answers more like this. Trust me. This is going to bring you to the end of yourself. Listen to me. Lean in to me. You have no idea how dependent on me you need to be. And I'm going to be there every step of the way. Now, that's not to say that in the Bible there are not even more specific instructions about parenting. There are, and a little bit later on here and, and tomorrow, and certainly in a Q&A, we're going we're to look at some of those things. But it just gives us a place to start. And the place to start, really, when we think about faithful parenting, biblical parenting, it's actually not with our kids. It's with our hearts as parents. So we're not starting with the child, but we're starting with our hearts. Begins in the parents' hearts. So I'm going to pick that back up here uh, a little bit later towards the end of our session today. But if you're a parent here, I think you can relate, can't you, to Manoah and his wife and their desire for, like, what do we do? How do we parent? We need a manual. And of course, you know that it's not just Christian parents that are concerned about parenting. I did a little Google search this last week. Type in parenting or parenting books on Amazon, and you know how many hits you get? Over 60,000. So that's a lot of information floating around out there, right, on parenting. 
60,000 hits. It also means that in you know, our time this week and next week, we're not going to be able to cover every last topic on parenting in great detail, but at least we can get the conversation started, give us a way forward. But in our quest to find answers then, and you all come with very specific questions about parenting, and in our quest to find those answers, it can lead us down all sorts of different paths, some of them better than others, some of them far worse than others. I want to encourage us this morning, just as a starting point for all of us, that you don't need to go on Amazon and start reading through 60,000 different resources on parenting to help you. That, in fact, the most important parenting book that you and I have, and that sometimes is actually the most often overlooked parenting book, is, in fact, the Word of God. It's the Bible. The Bible doesn't function as a how-to manual, though, does it? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, here's everything that's going to happen to your kid at year one or two or 10 or 21 or when they're 37. The Bible actually does something far greater for us as parents. It reveals the character and nature of our God, our heavenly Father. It reveals how our heavenly Father relates to us as his adopted sons and daughters. It, it lays out a path of blessing and life and wisdom for parents and for children. It warns us against walking in a different direction, away from him. It gives us purpose as parents. And let's be honest, there are, there are hard days as a parent where you wonder, is, is anything good happening at all? There are weeks like that sometimes, months even. The Bible points us to the the grace and the mercy and the sufficiency of Christ, our Savior, and, and His Spirit in operation in our lives as that which is the game changer. So even on our worst days as parents, and the days when you have nothing left to give, and when you're thinking, whatever the plan was or is, whatever I thought was the plan, it's clearly not working. Well, the Lord is still at work. He hasn't given up. He's right there with you in the midst of that struggle. So we're not left, in other words, to our own resources. So we want to start, really, the conversation today where the Bible starts, and that's with God, and with God's purposes here for the family, really God's view of the family. And again, this is on your outline here about half of the way down. God's view of the family. Now, there is a whole lot in Scripture here, as you can imagine. So we could spend the next 10 weeks talking about God's view of the family and we're still, in some ways, just scratching the surface. So I'm going to move fairly quickly through here. But I want to set a, just a biblical theological foundation. Because as you guys well know, we're redefining what family even looks like in our day, aren't we? I mean, that's just not a casual conversation. If you're with friends, you're at the coffee shop, you're at work, and they talk about family, you can't just assume that this person is saying that you're speaking the same language here. And so we're taking it out of, well, what do you think about family? What do I think about family? Well, here's what I read about family. What's most important is what does God have to say? We're taking our cues from him, right? That's, that's what we do here as disciples. We take our cues from God, from his word. So the Bible begins, brothers and sisters, with a biblical connection between marriage and children, okay? Between marriage and having children, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. One of the first things that God does for Adam, remember, is what? What does God do for Adam? Sorry? He provides a helper. Good. And that helper is, bonus point, 
It's Annie. Yes, that's right. Adam and Annie. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Marginal reading, but I get it. Yes, Adam and Eve, a helper for Adam, right? And, and notice then that the first command that God gives to Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, you guys remember? Is what? Be fruitful. In other words, have children. And some would say, well, okay, yeah, we get it. That was in paradise. That was pre-fall. That was before the entrance of sin. Sin distorted everything. Obviously, sin does distort everything. But notice that in, in Genesis 9-7, this is after the fall, after the flood, when things were not as they should be, God gives to Noah, he says the very same thing. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. It's the same command. You're married, have kids. Now, we need to be clear here. Some are blessed, as Paul talks about, with the gift of singleness, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. So they're not going to have kids. Some, in God's a mysterious but wise providence, are unable to have kids, able to have children. But for the rest, families with children are not optional. So it's actually commanded here by God. Now just think about that for a moment. Why do you think God commanded first parents here, by extension, why does he it's not just an option, like, hey, if you think about it, pray about it, and then come to a conclusion. I'm good with whatever. That's not what he says. It's commanded to have children. Why, would, why do you think he would do that? What's his purpose, do you think, in that? Crickets. I know, N- not a trick question. I mean, there are wrong answers, and I'll let you know, but... Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you for your participation. Good. Okay, we're gonna, that's the next point on, so you're tracking. Next, next point there. Good, Ryan. Yes, Nate. Good. Yeah, excellent. Yes, Marissa. Yeah. Good. Sorry, I just didn't hear the last part. Yeah. Oh, good. So, yeah, so... Human beings created in his image, right? So just very simply, God really wants his image bearers, men and women, to multiply because he wants more of his image spread throughout the world for his glory. I mean, that's, that's God's high view of family and children. And so Adam and Eve created in the image of God, right? And God decided to graciously share the privilege of creating human beings with people who are created in his image. And so that's why Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham, his family, right? Why? To be what? A blessing through whom all the nations of the earth would know of the one true God. God has a high view, in other words, of family. Plays a high priority in that. We are image bearers. Now, that is not the world's view, is it? In fact, that is contrary. Uh, we, we, 
smack up against that, and here's on your outline, I think there's three main views from the world as it relates to the family. Okay, and you, we've all heard things like this. Number one, children can be viewed as idols, right? So, yeah, having children, it's great, it's kind of optional, but yeah, if we, you know, if my wife and I decide we're going to do that, that's great, but it really is a means for married people just to find their own self-fulfillment. So, everything's going to revolve around our kids, and, and by extension, then, man, I'm just living through my kids, and I'm going to put them up as an idol. Now, we don't say things like this, but functionally, we see how that can work. So that's one view, children as an idol. Here's a second view. Children are seen as a tool. A tool. So you probably heard something like this, you know, children are important, families are important, they're the building blocks of a civilized society, they're even the building blocks of church. Now they're not wrong in that, I'll pick that up in just a minute. But, but they're really just seen as kind of like a tool, a means to an end. Here's the third view from the world. Children are, in fact, an obstacle. I think I probably hear or you read this probably, probably most. That, you know, it's not all that important to have children, but, and I don't think I really want to have children because they're just going to get in the way of me and my life and the dreams that I have and the goals that I have and climbing up the ladder here or going this way of, of really that, that idea of self-fulfillment. And it's, it's sad, it's tragic, it's horrific, especially because you, you hear this sort of thing uh, with a lot of abortion advocates, right? I'm going to abort my baby because it, it, I can't do what I really want to do. They're, they're in the way of my self-fulfillment. It's, 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 it's awful. So we see there then, I mean, and there's probably other ways too. Those are maybe some of the top, top three ways at least. But sin, Genesis 3, absolutely distorts everything including our responsibility as parents and our view of kids. So we want to bring it back in here to say, okay, what's God's view? What does God have to say? We're taking our cues from him. Scripture teaches us that the family presents the world with a picture of God and a picture of the gospel. So there's, there's two main pictures here. And both of these are rich and deep, and, and I wish we had even more time than we do. But I want to at least kind of whet your appetite here, and maybe just, this might not be new for you, but it is a good reminder as we think about just the family, okay? The family as a picture of, of really God himself. So we see then that the family provides us with a, really a picture of the father-son relationship within the Trinity. And this is why the Apostle Paul could write Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, Ephesians 3, 14 through 15. So what Paul's saying is that the relationship between the heavenly Father and the Son, well, that's, that's, rea that's ultimate reality. Now, obviously, the relationship between earthly fathers and sons or parents and children is, is a small, and because of our sin, it's often distorted but it's still a meaningful picture of reality, of the reality of the Father and the Son. Now, again, it's not an absolute analogy because the relationship of the Heavenly Father to His Son is unique. Son, Jesus, was eternally begotten, right? Uh, not created in time like all of our children are. But even for those differences, we can, we can understand here that there is an essential relationship between the Father and the Son, just the language that is used there. And that's picked up all throughout Scripture. 
God the Father, twice from heaven, spoke audibly, and he declared Jesus as his beloved son. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And Jesus, for his part, remember at age 12, he referred to his father's house. Familiar terms. There's a relationship there. That's Luke 2.49. Actually, and later on, this is actually interesting, I think. To, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. This is John chapter 5. He actually explained his relationship with God the Father in terms of a human son copying his dad. So he said, I tell you the truth, John 5. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Isn't that interesting? Paul, again, in his post-conversion sermon, this is Acts 9.20, he again speaks of this in the synagogue, that Jesus is, what, the Son of God. Paul describes himself later as an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So here's the point. When you think of God, when you think of the triune God, when you think of just the Trinity, this is foundational to Christianity, it's really, really difficult to even think about or to even speak about God without having those categories of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Now, yes, there are, there are other ways. I mean, Jesus is also referred to as the Word. The Word has become flesh. flesh. He's the image of the Father. Paul, First uh, uh, Corinthians 11, describes the Father as the head of Christ. But let's just take Jesus because that's pretty important. When Jesus commands his disciples to baptize new believers, remember what he says, baptize new believers. He doesn't tell them, doesn't tell them, baptize them in the name of the head, the body, and the Holy Spirit. What does he say? Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's by far and away in Scripture just uh, the, the most um, biblically favored formulation, I guess. So, on your outline here, wh- what do we learn from this? The family is a picture of the triune God himself. So, our love for and our likeness to our children, okay, bears witness to, in fact, God's very nature. The whole point of that is that God intends with you and your family and your kids God intends to project his image through the parent-child relationship. Now, on one hand, that should just humble us all. Like, what are we supposed to do with this child? It's way more than trying to figure out what time is bedtime. But on the other hand, it should encourage us too. Because God is, this is by his divine will and decree. He's, He's neck deep in this with us. So we're We're not left on our own resources here. This comes from the very heart of God the Father. So what are some practical implications of what I just said here? I think there's four. They're on your uh, sheet there. Number one, it keeps us from viewing children simply as obstacles. If we're really tracking here. Now, again, maybe we're tempted or you have friends that are tempted Having children is not that important. It can even get in the way of godly service and godly ambition. But if the parent-child relationship is commanded, and it is, and we are to bear witness in our families to the glory of God, His image, then, well, really nothing could be further from the truth. Children are not obstacles to ministry. In fact, the very presence means they are. 
They're a kind of ministry, sometimes a very loud ministry, but they're a ministry nonetheless, okay? So it keeps us from viewing children as obstacles. I think it also keeps us from viewing children as idols. And, I mean, you got to know, this is, you know, some self-reflection here today, next week as you go along as a parent, where you have a certain MO, you have certain tendencies, and so it may not be all of these that impact you, but there may be one of these here that you say, you know what, that's, that hits home, area of growth. We're just going to see it as an area of growth. But it keeps us viewing children as idols. Some may be tempted to worship their children. And again, that doesn't come up in home group, usually. Pray for me because I've really worshipped my children this last week. Usually not. It's much more subtle. But fathers, mothers, singles even, they can put children on a pedestal. And so we need to be reminded that God didn't put his divine stamp on family so that we would worship the family, but so that we'd, we'd worship God. So yeah, we want to build our homes, okay? But we do that as a means to glorifying God. That's the point. I think it keeps us from viewing children simply as tools. I mentioned that just a little bit before, right? Some argue that, again, families are important because they're the building blocks of society and the church, and, and we get that. And there's a lot of truth in that, okay? That's really meant as a compliment. And in some sense, families do. Intact, godly, Christian families do keep the world from like spinning completely out of control, no doubt. But that's not the whole story. I mean, families, the the reason families in God's design is not just because he said, okay, families are going to be the glue for society. Remember, families are actually a display of of the triune God. They reflect him. That's the point. And I think fourth, it keeps us from just overlooking children. And without this kind of theological understanding for the role of children and really the role of families, well, it's super easy just, just to overlook them. And, and perhaps if you're single here too, you, it's really easy then to, for you to view someone else's or, or children as, well, they're, they're somebody else's responsibility. It's not mine. It's part of a local church. I mean, I don't have anything to do with them. Well, actually we do. And if we're parents, we might just look at our kids and say, well, the reason they're on this earth is because they're objects of evangelism. That's it. Just get them saved. So we don't overlook them. So uh, let me just ask here a quick question, just to put a pause button there. Why do you think it is so easy? And I'm talking about us in the church, Christians. Why do you think it's somewhat easy to, to develop these kind of distorted view of the family or even of children? Why sometimes is it so easy just to even overlook them? Good. All right, next point. Okay, we're selfish. Okay. Children as, there's, as an idol in that sense. Yeah, Dave. Yep, no doubt. Anybody else? Yes, Kathy. And, and why, what are some of the challenges with that? that it, I think you're right. We don't often view children as blessings, and why is that sometimes? 
because they're not. <laughs> in the moment, like, yeah, they're not acting like a blessing. They're not looking like a blessing. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. And so they're like, it, and we're talking about the parents' heart here too, right? We're talking about, okay, we got to recalibrate here. Good. Yeah, Barry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Jesse. That is a great segue into the second point here, which is the family as a picture of the gospel, okay? The family as a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God and it's a picture of the gospel. And, and when we think about the family, as God's view, it provides a profoundly personal picture of our salvation. Because in salvation, God does what with us? We were wayward rebels. And what does God do in the gospel? He adopts us. Nobody else was adopting us. Nobody wanted to adopt us. We were unadoptable, but not for God. He adopts us. He makes us sons and daughters. And so, Old Testament here, God refers to Israel as, and this is just beautiful language, and so we ought not, like, move over this. Whenever you see this in Scripture, like, oh, yeah, God's son. No, we got to let that land. God referred to Israel as his firstborn Son, Exodus 4, 22. He referred to the people of Israel. They were encouraged to sing of the Lord's greatness, of his fatherly compassion for them. Psalm 103, verse 13. Israel as a son pointed to Christ, right? The true son. Uh, Galatians 4, again, this, the good news is that Christ came to actually affect our adoption, to, to make us fellow heirs. Galatians 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Think about Jesus when he, he taught his disciples, right, how to pray, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus begins with what? Our Father who is in heaven. And, and again, if you just follow the context there, later on in Matthew chapter 6, teaches his disciples to pray our Father in heaven. Why? Because he reminded them that you don't have to be anxious about anything, about food, about clothes. Why? Because your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Because you're a son you're a daughter, your heavenly Father's caring for you, Matthew 6, 32. John 14, he also promised them that his Father would not abandon them as orphans. You see that language, uh, throughout, especially throughout the New Testament. So they've been adopted. That's the beauty of the gospel. John, in, in 1 John 3, it's like John's hearing this for the first time, 1 John 3, 1, and in response to this good news, he can't help but burst out and just, Praise and wonder. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? Children of God. And that is what we are. 
I mean, John's just emphatic there. That is what we are. And so he's, he's just, he can't, I mean, he's kind of like Manoah's wife there, probably talking really, really fast. And it's just like, I can't believe this is happening. We are, in fact, God has, the, the, the love of the Father has been given to us, lavished on us. We're actually children of God. This is incredible. That's actually what we are. So for some of us here, we might just need to re- remind, remind, we need to be reminded of that. Like, we don't want to lose the wonder and the excitement like John had here. Because parent-child relationships, this is what I'm driving at, that's not an accident. That's not just sort of a small part of God's plan. That's not sort of, yeah, it'd be great, but, you know, take it or leave it. No, in fact, the parent, through the parent-child relationship, it is designed by God, our Heavenly Father, to teach us by analogy of our relationship with God the Father. The blessings of adoption, the good news of the gospel. It's, just, it's a profoundly beautiful picture. And I think that, if we can get a hold of that, that actually does have all kinds of practical implications for how we do parent our children. J.I. Packer there, this is uh, Knowing God. Uh, It's on your outline. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. I don't think, I didn't put this in your notes here. Um, Grudem has, uh, in his systematic theology, says this. This relationship to God as our Father is the foundation of many other blessings of the Christian life, and it becomes the primary way in which we relate to God. So very practically, we do need to see ourselves first as children who have a heavenly Father. That relationship here for all of us is primary. And so you think here, too, how how Scripture often points to this analogy of the the parent-child relationship just to help us understand our own lives, to to help us understand when hard things come, when the trials come. Uh, For instance, uh, the author of Hebrews here, when the trials come, and they will. The author of Hebrews tells us not to forget that word of encouragement that addresses you as, not as people, as just nondescript people in the crowd, that addresses, no, that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So here again, there are some practical implications, I think, that flow out of the family, the parent-child relationship as God has designed it as a picture of the gospel, a picture, a beautiful picture of our adoption as uh, children of God. First, we can learn from God the Father what true fatherhood is actually like, what it entails. God the Father fathers us perfectly, obviously. How does he do that? Well, he forgives us lavishly. He, He listens to us all the time. He's generous, he's extravagant in his care and his love and his provision, his protection. 
So if that's all that we knew about God the Father, well, that would still make enough difference, right? That, well, that's how we want to parent our kids. That they would see some, it's going to be distorted because of our sin, but they would see some likeness to God the Father in how it is that as fathers we parent, and certainly as moms and dads, we want to do the same. I think some of the, we used to do this, well, we still do it now, actually, but when our kids were a little bit younger, uh, you know, gather around, eat together, supper, and, uh, you know, oftentimes you'd be like, okay, let's, let's do some highs and lows, right? You guys probably do this. What are, what's the high? What's the low? How was your day? What was hard? What was maybe easy? What brought you joy? What was, so highs and lows. And especially when they're young, you know, as, as a parent, you're just listening, right? You're just trying to hear. What are they thinking about? What are they processing? What's on their plate? And, and, and as a dad, it's not like, you know, if you're, let's say if Ella, which is six years old, and she's like, oh, this is my high. It's not like I'm saying, well, that's, that's not a good high. That didn't make sense. How's that a high? You know, or that's not, that's not an acceptable answer. No, you're, you're not saying that. You're just listening. You know, but, but again, just in that little exercise there, is there something there that our kids can learn about God? Well, absolutely. Like, God actually cares about your highs and lows, about your coming and going. That's what he says in Psalm 139, verse 3. That their heavenly Father loves them individually. He knows about their going out and their lying down. He's familiar with all their ways. So even in something as simple as that, there's an opportunity to help our kids get a vision of God, their heavenly Father. So we can learn from God the Father what true Father is like. Second, we, we remember that God the Father insists on our worship and obedience. So yes, God the Father is, is not satisfied with our current state. He, he's actively working to conform us to the image of his son. That's Romans 8, 29. And God's purpose in this is that we would, like Jesus, that we would imitate him. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. We're dearly loved, so we imitate God the Father. We obey God the Father. So as it relates to our parenting then, we, we are called, parents, to instruct and disciple our children to conform them to righteous and wise living. And, I mean, the whole book of Proverbs is essentially set up to do that. So we remember that, that God the Father, because He is our Heavenly Father, he, he insists on our worship and our obedience. And so with our kids, we want to direct them there. And three, we rejoice then that God the Father is patient with us. God is patient with us as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13, it's not hard for God to be patient with you. It isn't. He happily, generously, supernaturally, amazingly gives his spirit to us and to those who ask, if you then, though evil, give good gifts to your children, I mean, notice how that's pretty blunt, isn't it? Well, he doesn't sugarcoat that. If you then, though evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God's not stingy in his grace with us. He's very generous. And all of that flows, all of these blessings flow from the beauty of the gospel, from our adoption. We were rebel sinners God makes us children, 
sons and daughters. He invites us in. And so then the love that we have for our children, and yes, the privileges that they have as being our children, the, the care that we can show them is, is, is a beautiful picture. Sometimes it's a faint picture, but it is still a beautiful picture of all that we have, the blessings of, of being in Christ through the gospel. So, you might hear that and you think, okay, I get it. The family, designed by God, God has a high view of family. Family is a picture of God, the triune God. My family is a picture of God. My family then is to be a picture of the gospel, lived out and applied. But you might say, you know, there, like if you just look at this last week of your life, then you might be here thinking, yeah, okay, I know my kids and family, are. they were a picture of something this last week but I don't think it's God, and I don't think it's the gospel. Don't be discouraged by the fact that our families don't often live up to the ideal, to God's ideal for the family. Of course they don't. Let me ask you this. Name one area in your life where you absolutely do live up to God's ideal. I'll go ahead and write that down. We'll get it up on the screen. Just one area. Anybody? Nobody? None of us. We are needy sinners. We are weary sufferers. And so that's why we are absolutely dependent on God, our Savior, and to learn to apply the gospel moment by moment in every area of life, including, including parenting, this incredible task that God has given to us. So yes, ultimately, we're trusting in God's ability and in his power to redeem our families, to make them images of eternal truths. We're absolutely dependent on the grace that is given to us in the gospel. So what does that mean then? It means on the one hand, we don't, we don't scorn families. It also means we don't idolize families. It certainly means we're not worshiping families We're not devaluing families either. We're not slighting families. What are we seeking to do? We want to build up and treasure and guard them. Why? For ultimately the glory of God. Because our families are pictures of God, of the triune God, and they are pictures of the gospel. And so the place to start then, parents, well, is with your own heart. And it's in my heart. Just so you know, next week, we're going to look at your child's heart and getting to the heart of their behavior. So we're just starting here with the parents, with us. And here's my point. When I say the place to start is with your heart. The more as, that as parents, we're learning and we have to learn this. The more that we're learning to earnestly deal with our own hearts, the better equipped we'll be to help our children face theirs. And so the more that we are earnestly and even eagerly, humbly but boldly, dealing with our own sins, well, the better equipped that we're going to be able to help our children face up to their sins, the more the good news of the gospel begins to make an impression in, in our hearts. It lands on us. We are being changed slowly but surely. The more the good news of the gospel is going to flow out of us and actually make an impression on our our children's hearts. So we're starting with our hearts as parents. We're not starting with our kids' hearts. So as a parent then, here's 
Here's the big question. I mean, there are many big questions. But how gospel-centered are you as a parent? In other words, as a parent, are, are you learning to be a picture of the gospel? Now, I realize in asking that, we have to just be honest. Every one of us falls short. Okay? None of us do this perfectly. But, but God-centered parents, really gospel-centered parents, first have a focus on God. We are directed to God. We see ourselves as His children who are needy and in need of Him. So, and we have a heavenly Father who, who loves us then, and He's, he's even more concerned he loves your kids, your families, even more than we do because he does that perfectly, always. So, how gospel-centered are you as a parent? You might think, well, okay, this last week, not much. Uh, so, I want to put up a, uh, on the screen here, okay, I don't know if you can see that. This actually comes from a, a book which is called... Uh, I don't even remember what the book's called. I'll remember and get it to you. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, Gospel Center Parent. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we have some, uh, there's a couple resources that I'll, I'll talk about at the end here. But this just gives some categories. And so for some of us, just a place to start is, how do we even think about that? And so I found it really helpful this last week in my own life and thinking through my own parenting here. Okay, wh where's the area of growth? So I don't want you to read this list and think, man, I am 0 for 7. I'm not coming back next week. But just to see it, let it inform your prayers, okay? Gives us categories to say, here's the difference. Here's what we're aiming for. This gives us a sense for, this is the direction we want to go in. So, for example, either a self-centered parent or a child-centered parent lives with anxiety over their children's faith, safety, education, future, or other concerns. Gospel-centered parents live with faith that more and more, God controls the future. They strive to be more faithful to him while worrying less about where that might lead. Hands up if as a parent you would love to worry less about your kids. All of us would, right? That just doesn't happen because we keep saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. No, that's called faith. That's the fight of faith that every parent, every Christian parent is involved in. More and more to be able to say, not, not anxiety, but I, Lord, Today, I have to trust you for my kids. All right, how about this? Self-centered or child-centered parents. A lot of pressure to do parenting correctly, win approval from spouse, family, other parents, even God. Often compare their families with other families. There's a gospel-centered parent. They know they already enjoy the favor of God. That's the starting point. They're not earning it. You can't earn that by your parenting. You know that, right, parents? Like if you're trying to earn favor from God because of your ability as a parent, that's bad news. That's not good news. So they know they already enjoy the favor of God. Because we enjoy the favor of God, then we seek to follow him in obedience as a parent. They know the favor of God through Jesus who died for them. So they're free to parent in love, not out of pressure to impress. And there's a, a whole lot more here. How about this? Uh, uh, self or child-centered parents seldom praise. It's not that they're not busy, but they prefer to focus on fixing their kids, fixing the problems by themselves. Gospel-centered parents are learning 
to pray. Big prayers, small prayers, prayers during the day, prayers in the middle of the night, all kinds, trusting their Heavenly Father to help. Self-centered parents, child-centered parents, I'm skipping down here, maybe, maybe controlling towards their children, either overbearing or even manipulative, feeling the need to make sure that everything goes right. Here's a picture of a gospel-centered parent, just learning to trust that, that God is in control. He's the wise, heavenly Father that we need, that our children need. And we're chiefly concerned then with helping our children see Him, see the Lord. So again, there's, uh, it, it gives categories, and so, uh, and we can, I think we can make this, well, we'll check maybe on the, if we can reproduce this, we probably need permission. So we'll get permission to hopefully reproduce this so you have that. But, but again, let that inform your prayers. We need to know what we're aiming for and how the Lord, the direction that he wants us to move in, wherever the pressure points and wherever you see this morning, uh, yeah, number one there, that's definitely where I'm falling short. Okay, you can begin by, you and your wife, ideally, or husband, spouse, by praying, okay? That's, that's, that's gonna inform your prayers uh, this day and this week. Okay, let me just close here with uh, a couple of words of encouragement for all of us as parents. I'm not sure where I heard this. It was at a conference, and it was kind of one of those things where, man, I gotta write this down. I don't know the guy's name, but I prayed this week, and the Lord didn't give it to me, so I'm just gonna say this was from a guy at a conference, and he was, he was a grandfather. And it, the, the conference wasn't even about parenting, so this was kind of an, a side thing, but as soon as I heard it, I was like, man, I gotta remember that and write it down, which I'm glad that I did. He had adult kids, here's what he said. God has been so gracious to allow my children to remember the best parts of me and to forget many of my failures. And he said, your kids see you trying, and that matters more than you know. Your kids see you trying, and that actually does matter more than you know. Super encouraging. And again, this was from a, he was a grandfather. He had the privilege of seeing his children grow up to, to love the Lord and see many of his grandkids come to know the Lord. In other words, he speaks with experience. He's, he, was, he knows of the trials. He knows, and he's looking back and be able to say, basically, don't, don't give up. The small things matter. The things that you don't think matter, they actually do matter. And it's not like your kids or mine are going to come up, you know, daily and, and just say, hey, uh, thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks for trying. <laughs> I mean, would, you'd probably fall flat on your face, right? <laughs> They're not going to do that. But it matters to the Lord, right? So we need that encouragement. Don't give up. Here's a second piece of encouragement. This was from a, a blog that I read several years ago. And I just thought this was, this was encouraging for my own heart. And, and the, the sense of it was just this, that excellent or biblical, faithful Christian parenting is actually remarkably normal, ordinary. In other words, it's not all about like every weekend taking epic adventures with your kids and giving them all kinds of experiences that they're going to remember for the rest of their earthly lives. No, really the point there was, you know, when you think about it, when you kind of boil it down, the, how God has created us, how he's wired us, how he, how he has set up the family, it's, it's actually remarkably ordinary, the things that God is calling us to do and the things that he will bless. Deuteronomy 6, right? 
train up, or the, it, talk about it, right? That's a, after the Shema, right? Talk about it with your kids. Talk about the Lord when you lie down, when you get up, on the road. When, so the sense there is just in the normal, ordinary stuff of life, in the comings and the goings, right? You're, you're just doing normal, ordinary things. So w- what are a couple of those things? Well, I mean, be, be present with your kids at all ages, and there are different challenges at different years, obviously. But that's what faithful Christian parenting is, just being present, listening, listening to your kids, whether they're 3 or 10 or 37. I mean, my dad knows what it is to listen to me. Pray. Ask questions. Yeah, we, we think of scriptures like Ephesians 6 verse 4, don't exasperate your kids. Don't provoke them to anger. Now that requires the Holy Spirit. But yet, you know, parenting is not just for super disciples of Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit works in our lives, gives us what we need. I mean, Second Peter, the, we, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That actually includes parenting. Okay, so excellent, faithful, biblical parenting is, is remarkably normal and ordinary in many, many ways. And third uh, encouragement, the gospel really is good news for all parents, every last one of us. The gospel gives us motivation to persevere, not to quit. Why? Because God is at work even when we're not, and even when we think nothing good is happening, God is still active. He's still moving, desires to move in your heart, in your family, okay? The gospel gives us great hope, right? Hope beyond this life and beyond what oftentimes we can see, and and especially if you have really young kids, you see a lot in front of you. But there is a sense where we, we really understand the goodness of the gospel that we know then that our hope is not tied to our kids even or to how well we parent them. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be something greater. Our hope is actually tied to Christ and he's in control. He can redeem and bring good. So you look around and you think, wow, this was a mess. Like, I don't want to repeat this day. So what, 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 that, what is that prayer? That's, that's the prayer to say, Lord, you are a redeeming God So would you please bring good out of the chaos? Do something good. And it may be my own sin as a parent. And it's definitely my kids' sins, but it's mine too. Redeem. And the Lord does that. That's his nature. Like we worship a redeeming God. Gospel's such good news because it also then reminds us that it is, we're not dependent on ourselves. At the end of the day, for parents, Right? We have a savior to turn to and to trust in. Okay, the natives are getting restless at the back. So I'm going to close in prayer here. Just two quick things. Uh, there's a, that box right there. I'd encourage you. I know you have questions. Uh, and specific questions, maybe. And I want you to be as specific as you can in your season of life now. I want you to write that, uh, write them down there, put them in the box there. Uh, for two weeks from today, we're going to have a Q&A uh, with some parents, and we want to address those questions as much as we can. So now if we get 74 questions, we're probably not going to address every, every last one of them, but we're going to do our best. Uh, so I want to know, and just before the Lord, and if next, you'll have an opportunity next week as well, 
but put your questions in there. There are a couple resources here that uh, I'll make mention of probably next week more that we can get in your hands as well. Again, this is to just get the conversation going here and to give us a way forward. So next week, we're going to actually talk about the goal of parenting. What are we actually after? And getting to the heart of our children's behavior. So let me close in prayer. Yeah. 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 Yep. You have a role. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And it's, it's for people who don't have kids. Because there is a responsibility as a single that, yeah, it's not just, oh, parents, they're doing all this. But in a local church, what a wonderful opportunity that there is a role that you play in their life as well. Father, thank you for, thank you for being our Heavenly Father. Thank you for loving us when we were very unlovable and when we wanted nothing to do with you. Through the grace of the gospel, you have rescued us, you have adopted us. We are sons and daughters. What a great joy, undeserved. Lord, I, I pray that we would more and more, as, more and more as we understand that and understand you, that you would give us the right words to speak to our kids this week, that you would give us categories to, to think through of how we can best love them and point them to you. Because, Lord, our Really, when it's all said and done, our, the greatest joy we have as parents is that one day our kids would know you. So I pray that, that even this day and this week, that uh, you would help us because we are needy. We are needy children, but we're running to a wise, all-knowing Heavenly Father in whom there is grace upon grace. Give us that encouragement, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. You get 10 minutes. <laughs>